Well, good morning. It's Easter Sunday, and we're going to be thinking this morning about the, the resurrection of the Lord. Now, of course, we should remember that all the time, but it's, uh, I guess, appropriate at this time with everybody in this part of the world going around saying to us, Jesus was and uh, us answering, Vaistinu was You know, Jesus rose from the dead. I protest in sober verity that he is risen indeed. That's a traditional uh, greeting. Um, and I want to ask us whether we really believe that he really did rise from the dead, and if so, then what does this mean for us? Now Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, that if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, you're yet in your sins, we are absolutely of all men most miserable. But the upside, of course, is that if Christ is risen from the dead, we are not miserable. We have a living, lively hope, as Peter says in his letters, because the Lord has risen from the dead. So then, did he rise from the dead? Well, I think we all put our hand up and say, yes, I believe he did. But let's just think about it. Suddenly, early that morning, I guess maybe a Monday morning or possibly a Sunday morning, whatever it was, it was the day after the uh, the holiday had finished, the big Passover holiday. Everyone was getting up, going back to work, going uh, to get the animals ready, cleaned out, getting the kids ready, back to work. You know that feeling after the holiday is finished and we've got to get back to, back to reality, back on the track. That's what everybody was, was caught up with. But there, in that grave, with those two soldiers or whoever outside it, Jesus rose from the dead. There was a dead body wrapped as the manner of the Jews is to bury, and he came alive. What do you think was the first thing that he did physically? I know we don't know, but when Peter later looked into the tomb, he saw the grave clothes neatly folded. It seems to me that the Lord rose from the dead, and he folded up his grave clothes. Now, I find that surpassing. I find that beautiful and absolutely wonderful because it shows something of the, of the calmness that there was in him, that he knew that he would rise from the dead. And so he rose from the dead. And I suppose he must have thought, well, so, so this is it. As I knew, okay, fold the grave clothes up. Those, those dear women, Wrapped me like this. Oh dear, what, a, what trouble they went to. And then he goes out. And you can just get the picture in your mind. Young man, well, 33, whatever, but young guy. Standing there, just as the dawn is breaking. And he sees the lights of Jerusalem shimmering in the distance. And everyone's getting up, going back to work after the holidays. And the Son of God is rising from the dead. Nobody standing there to shake hands and congratulate no great uh, entourage waiting for him. Just a man standing there alone, looking out at Jerusalem and I guess up to heaven. And then a little bit later, you remember that wonderful incident where Mary Magdalene is, is there and she thinks he's the gardener. And uh, she says, well, you know, if you've taken away the body, where, where, where do you take it to? And she's obviously not looking at him. She's so distressed and distraught with her grief She's got her back to him, and she's not looking at the gardener, as she thinks, when she speaks. She's talking with her back to him. And then you remember Jesus says, 
Mary. And she recognizes the voice. And she turns and sees him there, that this is Jesus. And again, what I find surpassing, beautiful, absolutely superlative, is the way that he's dressed like a gardener. He's not there in shining white raiment. He's dressed like a gardener. So that she didn't even assume that he's anything other than the gardener. And I see in that the humility of God and the humility of the Lord Jesus. That there's no, as there would be, I think, in any human religion, some great fanfare and somebody there in, in, in amazing clothes and everything, like unfortunately a lot of Catholic and Orthodox art has presented to us. But somebody dressed as a gardener. I find that just beautiful. Just shows how God values humility. And how God is not a God that boasts and shows off. His glory is on a far higher level. That happened. That happened. On a day in April, 2,000 years ago, just outside Jerusalem, the Jerusalem that you can find on an atlas and think, yeah, that's Jerusalem, I see. Just outside of that city, 2,000 years ago, on a Monday morning or a Sunday morning maybe, on a day in April, this happened. The Son of God really rose from the dead. Now, the ministry of Jesus appeared to have ended in failure, naked, crucified, covered in blood and spittle, left to die on a cross, and the Christian movement, the Jesus movement, appeared to, to have lost it. That their leader had been killed, his followers had just faded away, just as happens when a, a great leader disappears or a movement comes to an end, everybody fades away. But no, Christianity went on. And even the most hardened atheist and skeptic would have to historically accept this. Christianity went on in a very amazing way to fill the Roman Empire. How? If, in, in fact, his ministry ended in apparent failure, and I suggest that only the resurrection provides the answer. Now, if he did not rise from the dead, the bones of the Lord Jesus are still or were still somewhere in, in Palestine. And you can be sure that it's not for want of trying to find his bones. Uh, it would have been a huge effort to try to prove that, now nah, actually, now nah, this is all a nonsense. The only explanation, as I can see it, of the, the huge conviction uh, and success of, of the, the early uh, preachers of Christianity was because he actually did rise from the dead. Now, reading through the four gospel records that talk about the resurrection, there are some themes that come out. One of them is the terrible slowness of his own people, his own believers, to believe that he had risen from the dead. You remember on the way to Emmaus, they're saying, well, you know what, the worst thing about it, we followed this man, but the worst thing about it, it's already three days since he died. Look, he had said so many times, clearly, that after three days I will rise again. They were so slow to believe this. Many years ago, I used to run, when I was a real young guy, run a, an ecclesia in Harare in, uh, in Zimbabwe. And at the end of each uh, talk, I, I would say on Sundays, anyone got any questions in the Bible reading this week? And it must have been Easter 1989. I believe it was 89 or possibly 1990. 
I put this question and a, a very sweet sister put her hand up and uh, she said, well, I can't understand, you know, when the women uh, came early in the morning to put flowers on Jesus' grave, you know, they were all sad and that, and they were really shocked when he, you know, he was, saw angels and he was resurrected and that. Wh why? Do you know what I mean? Well, forgetting about putting flowers on the grave, I, I said, yes, I do know what you mean. And that sweet question, a very sweet uh, young African sister asked that, that, that lovely question has echoed in my mind for the last 20 years. When they came to put flowers on his grave, well, why, didn't, why weren't they expecting a resurrection? Why were they so surprised when he, when he rose? So, as I say, let's forget about the flowers on the grave, but the point is, why? And that's a fair question, why? The point is, it's actually very difficult to believe in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And I wonder why that exactly is. And I think that any uh, difficulty we have in believing something has a psychological basis. And I think the psychological basis of this is that if he has risen, if this is for, for real, this demands an awful lot of you and I. The other themes that come out of a reading of the four records of, of the resurrection is the desire of Jesus and the angels that all of them who had, had witnessed this should tell other people, go tell my brethren, go and tell Peter. And they, they ran to tell others and the people, on the, the two men on the way to Emmaus ran back to Jerusalem to tell the others what had happened and they told them that Jesus had appeared and been seen by Peter. So there's a great theme of telling other people of the resurrection and of course it climaxes in the, in the records with Jesus saying, right, now go and tell the whole world. And in the context, the idea of telling others that, that uh, is there preceding that command to go and, go and tell the whole world is tell people of the resurrection. So then there was also, however, a theme that appears of resistance to do that, slowness to, to do that, a nervousness and a disbelief, of course, of, of the wonderful message. Why, why is this? Well, in Luke 24, verse 48, Jesus says to the, to the disciples, uh, Luke 24, 48, uh, 47, he, he says that it was written that Christ should suffer and rise from the dead the third day, and repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name, and ye are witnesses of these things. In what sense were they witnesses of forgiveness and salvation? made possible for all people. In Acts 5, they grab Peter and say, what are you doing preaching? And he doesn't say, well, well I, I got a command to do it, I can't uh, but do it, I was told. He doesn't say that, he doesn't justify his preaching by saying, I was told to do this. He answers by saying, why? Christ rose from the dead. So he sees resurrection the resurrection of the Lord, as a command in itself to tell other people about it. That if we really believe this, we naturally will tell other people about it. And that's why in Luke 24, Jesus says that 
you are witnesses of the fact that now salvation and forgiveness is possible for all people. So if we're witnesses of that, then we're going to go and tell other people. And Peter also says in Acts 5, when he's uh, being told not to preach, and he says he's going to preach because Jesus rose from the dead, he goes on to say that he's a witness of that, and also that Jesus is now at God's right hand, and from that position of power, he has enabled forgiveness. Now, Peter hadn't been up to heaven and checked that out. He wasn't a witness of what was going on in heaven. How could he be a witness of that? Because he saw and had understood and believed that the resurrection meant for him a wonderful forgiveness of sin, and therefore he had to tell this to other people. Time and again, as we read the, the later New Testament, we see this connection between the resurrection of Jesus and forgiveness. Forgiveness was not only enabled by his death, but also by his resurrection. This is why in Acts 2 and 3, several times, Peter makes the appeal to repent and be baptized and uh, take forgiveness of sins because Jesus has risen from the dead. In Acts 13, Paul talks about he whom God raised again, and he says that on account of this, is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. Because Jesus rose, therefore, on account of this, we preach and we preach forgiveness. God, Acts 3.26, having raised up his son Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from his iniquities. Acts 5, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus for to give or to inspire repentance to Israel and forgiveness. Continually this emphasis that because Jesus rose, we will be forgiven. Ephesians 2 verse 5, we who were dead in sins were quickened together with Christ. Now, what is the connection then between the Lord's resurrection and our forgiveness? This is not to downplay his death. That also was required for our forgiveness. But in what sense was the resurrection so crucial for our forgiveness, salvation, etc.? And it comes down to the fact that he was and is our representative. When we are baptized, we share in his death when we go under the water, and we share in his resurrection as we come up out of the water. We are quickened together with Christ, and therefore all our sins are forgiven. How? Where does the, the resurrection actually enable that? Because even if we were to say right from now on, okay, I will not commit any more sin, and even if we were strong-willed enough or whatever to do that, the fact is we've already sinned, and just one sin brings death. That's the whole point of Adam and Eve in the garden. We have sinned, and that's it, and we're dead. And how then are we going to, to, to have life, to have the forgiveness that is required in order to give a person eternal life? It can't be through us trying not to sin. Even if we are successful, we've already sinned. The way to that salvation that God has worked out is that we identify ourselves with Jesus. That we, as it were, as they did in the Old Testament, put their hand on the head of the animal and kill that animal to show that that animal represents me. But of course there was no uh, very visible, anyway, symbol of resurrection there in the Old Testament sacrifices. You could argue that the, uh, the bird being, <coughs> being 
let free and the, the goat running free in the wilderness and the Day of Atonement was, was symbolizing resurrection. But, uh, but the point is, we now, in our day, now that all the, the types and shadows are finished, the reality is <clears throat> that if we are connected with Christ, with his death and resurrection, as he said, because I live, you will live also. And so you see the crucial importance of understanding that the Lord, the Lord Jesus was and is our representative. If he died and rose again, and I am connected with him, then I also will die and rise again. That is why his resurrection is my resurrection, and it is your resurrection. And therefore, there is that connection between his resurrection and my and your salvation. So why Paul could say, if Christ is not risen, we will not be resurrected, and our faith is, is vain. 1 Corinthians 6.14 God raised up the Lord, the Lord Jesus, and will raise us up by his power. We are born again, 1 Peter 1 verse 3, unto a living and abounding hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In what sense? Because we have connected with him. His resurrection is now ours. So here we are meditating this morning upon his resurrection. And that is my resurrection, that I will be saved. And yet we have our massive questions, but, 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 but I'm so weak, but I'm not living quite the perfect life. Okay, it's not a case of are we doing enough, or are we good enough, are we righteous enough, are we clean enough, are we straight enough? The, the question rather is, are you in Christ? Are you in Christ? Am I? I put my hand up and say, yes, by grace I am. And you should be able to say the same. If you're baptized into Christ, you're in Christ. And if you're not baptized into Christ, sure you need to be. That's for sure. By that baptism, by that faith, that yes, I believe he rose from the dead and I believe that I've connected myself with him. I have bet, I have gambled, if you like, my entire self, all that I am, all that I hope for, all that is me, on the fact that he rose from the dead. Because his resurrection means that I shall live forever. And so this is why we cannot be passive to the fact that he rose from the dead. Because it means that I, who am in him, will rise from the dead. And this is no wonder Paul keeps on in, the, in his writings about this concept of being in Christ. Not just brothers and sisters of Christ, but in him. That we therefore will live for sure because he rose from the dead. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul talks a couple of times about not believing in vain. He says, if we believe that Christ rose from the dead, then we have not believed in vain. And he says at the end of that uh, dissertation there about resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, that our faith is not in vain, and so our labor is therefore not in vain. Our faith in his resurrection and our labor for him are therefore kind of connected. We will work, we will do something concrete in our lives because he rose from the dead. And so here we are this morning meditating about his, his resurrection and it must have some meaning. This is not just a case of saying, yeah, sure, I, I believe. And, yeah, and, and, everything. 
that if this is so, and he has risen from the dead, and I also shall live because he lives, therefore and thereby I must give my life to him in his service and share this with others. As I say, that's the great theme of the resurrection accounts, that they ran to tell others. And at the end, Jesus says, right, fine, go and tell everybody. So, 1 Peter 3, verse 21, translation is slightly uh, difficult, but I believe the RV margin gives the sense of the, the Greek correctly. 1 Peter 3, 21, he says, The like figure went unto even baptism, doth also now save us through the interrogation of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, he says, interrogates our conscience if we are baptized. So, we here are, nearly all of us here, baptized. So that we have chosen to believe in his death and resurrection that he is there in heaven right now. And we have been baptized. And now Peter says... Because we're baptized and because Jesus rose from the dead, his resurrection interrogates our conscience. Interrogates our conscience. In all areas of our lives, we are interrogated by this fact. Do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Yes, sir, I believe. Okay, you believe? This means a lot. This is not just, yes, sir, I believe. And this is why I think they were so slow to accept it. Because as I said, I think that there is a, what I would call a, a, a psychological kind of uh, aspect to disbelief uh, and even misunderstanding often has a, a psychological component to it. Why didn't people want to believe the simple, straight-up prediction of Jesus that after three days he would rise again? Why? Because it, it was an interrogation of their conscience. And subconsciously, Beneath the conscious recognition, they actually knew that that was the case. So when the women came to put the flowers on, on the grave, I, I do rather like that. Why, why didn't they believe? They didn't believe because subconsciously they knew that if in fact he has risen from the dead, this means everything in my life. There was one person, at least one anyway, who did understand, I think, and did believe, and that was Mary, Mary Magdalene. It seems that it's the same woman that, that washed his body, preparing it for his burial. I think she did perceive, and I think that's why she was the first person to see Jesus when he was, when he'd resurrected, and she's the first person who gets the command to go and tell other people. Now, bear in mind, this was a woman out of whom seven demons had been cast. That is, she'd been seriously mentally ill or <clears throat> psychologically ill in some way, and she'd been cured. And it seems she was also a former, a former prostitute. And she was a woman. And in the Roman world, <clears throat> the testimony of a woman had no meaning. If a woman stood up against you in court and said, yeah, he did this, that, and the other, and another woman stood up and said the same, that was nothing. It didn't count. It was only the testimony of a man that could count. And so Jesus turns all that on its head and says, now I will choose a woman, a woman that has got a history of mental illness, a woman who was a prostitute, formerly, and I will use her as my primary witness. And I will tell her to go and tell my brethren. 
Go and tell the blokes. Go and tell the man. You, a woman. And yeah, she goes and tells them and they say, you're crazy. We know you. You're off with the fairness. But why then did he do that? Because I think <clears throat> she is set up there as our pattern. As the pattern of all those who come to believe that Jesus really is risen indeed and are to go and tell other people. It's so that none of us can say, ah, yeah, no, it's not for me. I, no, you see, I'm not the best uh, sort of person to do that because, because, whatever, I can't speak very well, or I'm very shy, you know, or, well, I'm just a woman, I'm just a young person, I'm an old, old guy, I, I'm, I'm, you know, pegging out pretty soon. No, there's no excuse. None of us can feel that I'm, I'm not enough. I, I'm not the, the person. Because Jesus chose the last person, if you like, that humanly speaking you would choose as your witness. And she really believed. Now, <clears throat> don't forget that when there was that earthquake, when the Lord rose, the, uh, the guards lost consciousness. That's how I take Matthew 28 verse 4. They lost consciousness. Now, she was obviously scared. You know, she saw the angels. Uh, she saw the earthquake. But she wasn't uh, knocked unconscious in fear like those soldiers were. Her love for her Lord, her basic love, was stronger. And don't forget, you know, after an earthquake, you, you, you tend to be uh, not exactly thinking about anything else apart from your immediate situation. You don't go running to a grave that's guarded by aggressive soldiers. But somehow she believed, and so she, she overcame that fear. I don't say there was no fear. Of course there was a huge fear. But she is, as it were, our heroine. She, she is the pattern of all those who really seriously believe. And yes, she ran to tell the others, even though she knew as she was running that they were going to say, she's crazy, she's, she's a whore, uh, she's a woman. She knew they were going to say that, and half of her brain was telling her that. They ain't going to believe me. But the other half was saying, but this is so true. I know I'm the last person to say this, but I must. I, I'm going to. And he told me to, and he asked me to. And so that is exactly how it is with us, with half our brain telling us, nah, you know, it's not for me. Um, they're not going to believe me. I'm not good enough. I'm not the right person. I notice also that the other people who were given visions of angels, who saw the angels, etc., they, they describe it in more abstract terms. The, um, the women say, Luke 24, 23, that they saw a vision of angels. Well, actually, the record says they saw angels. Um, the disciples, when they had seen Jesus, they thought they'd seen a spirit, a ghost. Jesus said, no, I'm not a ghost. But Mary is far more concrete. She was looking for this. She was convinced of the actual, personal, bodily resurrection of the Lord. And she doesn't abstract it that, well, I saw a vision, or, well, I saw a ghost, looked like him. She was for real, that this is in all sober reality true, that he is risen indeed. So then, don't feel that you are not good enough to make the witness. Each of us has been given the Great Commission. 
to go out into all the world. Now, it doesn't mean to get an atlas and look at which country you're going to go to next. Into your world. Into that uh, little nexus that surrounds you. To tell people. And of course, you will be the witness that there's forgiveness. You know, how do you know he rose? Do you see the body? No. But I know that I've been forgiven. And I know that I have the hope of eternal life. No bones or whatever, or physical relics to show to prove it, or, well, I went up to heaven and I saw it. I saw him up there. No. This, was such a, this forgiveness that they received and the hope of salvation was such a felt reality that that was in itself the witness to the Lord's resurrection. And so it should be with us. But our testimony to forgiveness, to the freedom that we feel because of that, the certainty of salvation, this is the testimony, in fact, that Jesus rose from the dead. Because there's no other way that we could have that certainty. Finally, Jesus Christ, Hebrews 13, 7, Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. Another theme that I see coming out of the, the, the uh, resurrection records is the desire of the Lord Jesus to emphasize to his people that he is that same Jesus. The Jesus who died is the Jesus who resurrected, with a different nature, etc., but it's the same Jesus. And of course, it's the same Jesus that will come again. The Jesus who loved little children, who was so eager to forgive, who was so demanding in one sense. The Jesus who hated religious hypocrisy, who hated abuse in any form. The Jesus who, who really had it out with the Pharisees. This is the Jesus that died, and this is the Jesus that rose again, and this is the one with a very big O, the one, the beloved one, that we will meet in the Day of Judgment. It's not that, well, he was all meek and mild, but he's coming back as a roaring, angry lion. I think that is a, a, a misunderstanding. He uh, is the lamb, and he will come back as the lamb. He may be an angry lamb with, with his enemies, with those... The, the Pharisee category. But all the same, it's not that he's going to turn one face, that he turned one face, as it were, when he was on earth, and he's going to turn another one when he comes back. No. This same Jesus, who went up into heaven, the angel said, shall so come in like manner. Now, you could say the like manner means that in the same way as he sort of vertically ascended upwards, so he shall vertically descend downwards. He went from the Mount of Olives, so he will come back to the Mount of Olives. He came, uh, sorry, he ascended with a crowd of angels and he will come back also with angels. Well, you could read it like that. But it seems to me from what I think the Greek text implies, and I say implies, it does not concretely mean this. But I think it, it could be a fair reading, a fair interpretation of those words of the angels in Acts 1 to say that the same Jesus as a person, the same type of Jesus who went, is the one who is coming back. The one you knew is the one who's coming back. It'll be the same Jesus. Now, in a rather indirect way, in John 20, 
verse 18, the Lord, I think, brings this out. He says to them, I'm ascending to my Father, who is your Father, to my God, who is your God. Now that is not only a big nail in the coffin of Trinitarian theology, and it certainly is that. He's trying to emphasize to the disciples that my God is your God. My Father is your Father. That we are together. Because I've risen from the dead, and because I'm immortal and you're still mortal, please, please, please don't think that there is now this huge gap between you and me. No. My Father is your Father. And, and the, the point gets more interesting when you see that he's quoting what seems a little bit odd, but he's quoting from Ruth 1.16 in the Septuagint. And just to fill you in about the context there, Ruth was from Moab, and uh, she wants to stay with her, her mother-in-law, Naomi, who's a Jewess, and they're going back to, to the land of Israel. And Ruth is urged to remain behind in, in Moab. But she says, no, she says, I will come with you, my mother-in-law, even though I'm of a different people, because your people shall be my, my people, and your God, my God. Where you lay your head down, I will lay my head down. So I think what Ruth is saying to, to Naomi is, okay, we are different people, we're of a different racial group, but that doesn't essentially affect our relationship. I so love you, I'll stick with you, whatever, and your God is my God. And so Jesus quotes that in a beautiful way, because he's saying to us and to the disciples, okay, maybe we are of different races, as it were. There is that difference. But that does not affect our relationship. I so love you. My God is your God. There's another one. John 21, verse 5. It's when they're up in Galilee, and uh, they're fishing. And Jesus calls out to them, John 21, verse 5, and all the translations make a bit of a mess here. In the AV it says, Jesus saith unto them, Children, have you any meat? Children. It is a poor translation. It can't really be, it seems, dynamically or literally translated. This uh, Greek word, paideon. It's the plural familiar form of pais, boy, boys. Guys, I would translate it as in a dynamic sense. Fellas. Hey guys, you have anything to eat? And uh, it's been commented that this is very uh, colloquial and it's rather lower social class language. And here is the risen Son of God with eyes as a flame of fire saying, Hey guys, fellas, you, you, you got anything to eat? Why do you use this very colloquial term? Why? I think he's trying to emphasize that, look here, I am with you. Please, please, although I conquered death and I'm immortal, please do not see this distance between you and me as so classical. I am so with you. When he broke bread, broke the loaf with the disciples in Emmaus, we're told that he was known unto them in how he broke bread. As he took that loaf and broke it, the lights went on. Click. That's, this is Jesus. And then he's gone. His body language as he broke that loaf was exactly the same as his body language when he was a 
a human being, when he'd broken bread with them, what, three, four days earlier, he took the bread, broke it, gave to them. They knew his body language, and that's the same Jesus. His body language, even, after the resurrection, was the same. There's another little thing on a level of, of language. Three times in the Gospel of John, Jesus says the phrase, who are you looking for? John 1 verse 38, people are following him, and Jesus turns and says to them, who are you looking for? Later on, just before his, his death, John 18 verse, uh, verse 4, when they come to, to arrest him in the garden, he says, who are you looking for? And then after his resurrection, John 20 verse 15, same phrase used. When he says to Mary, when she uh, still hasn't recognized him, woman, why, why are you weeping? A.V. says, whom seekest thou? Who are you looking for? He uses this phrase three times, twice in his ministry, in his mortality, and once after the resurrection. Conclusion, he used the same turns of phrase in his mortal life as in his immortal life. Jesus is the same today as he was yesterday. It's rather like this phrase about, come and follow me, which is all through the, the Gospels. He says it again after his resurrection in that incident in, in John 21. So what does all this prove? The Jesus who walked the lanes and streets of first century Palestine, the Jesus who had, like every human being, certain phrases, ways of using language that we come out with regularly, that same Jesus was the same after his resurrection. That same Jesus who had a certain uh, way of, of just being, his body language, when he broke a loaf of bread open, that was the same afterwards. And it was the beauty of that that made the lights go on with those two, two guys on the way to Emmaus, or in, the, in their house in Emmaus. Click. That's, that's him. Now, this is, well, unbelievably, Wonderful encouragement to all of those of us, like every one of us, uh, who, who doubt our salvation, who wonder, will I be saved? What's he going to be like with me when he comes again? Well, if you, we want to know what he'll be like when he comes again, well, you've got the gospel records. That's who he is. And the same Jesus who was is the same who is and who shall be when we surely meet him again. Because meet him again we will do. That is for sure. That there will be a day of judgment, a day of account, and we will come before him. And your eyes, my eyes, will see him. And because he lives... Because he rose from the dead. You know, it's, words fail me now, really. All commentary is kind of bathos. It's inappropriate, it's irrelevant, almost. Because he lives, we shall live also. Thank you.